Reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. After a little bit longer break than what I anticipated, we're coming back to the book of Romans this morning, picking up where we left off at the end of June before we went into a couple of other series that sort of took on a life of their own. There'll be a little bit of overlap between that final service, people of the book, and this one, but uh, we'll keep on going then in Romans chapter 3 and working our way forward. So the title of the sermon asks a question, is God unrighteous? And that's a question that depending on what translation of Romans chapter 3 you're using is actually just asked outright. Other translations say, is God unjust? And put a question mark after that. So this question is being asked, and we all kind of look at it from the standpoint of, well, we're in church. We've just been singing and praying and worshiping the Lord. How can we even ask the question, is God unrighteous? I know I've shared this story in a couple of different settings, maybe even from the pulpit and probably recently, but it made me think again of that story about the Sunday school teacher who's standing in front of his class and he asks the kids the question, what's as big as a house? Gray, has floppy ears, a spindly tail, and a great big long nose. Now as the story goes, the class sat in relative silence for just a moment and then finally one little boy sort of piped up and he said, well, ordinarily I'd want to say that's an elephant, but since this is Sunday school, I'm going to say Jesus. And just so when we hear a question like, is God unrighteous? I think there are a lot of people in the world, nobody here this morning, but a lot of people in the world who would want to say, well, yes. There were books written not too long ago. One of them had the rather infamous title, God is not good, responding to that statement that we make so many times that God is good all the time. And there are people who want to say, yes, God is unrighteous, God is unjust, God is unfair. But we're in church. So the easy answer to the question, is God unrighteous, would just be to say, what a, what a really, truly silly question. No, of course God is not unrighteous. Then we could just wrap things up, have the Lord's Supper, and go home. And yet the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to ask just this question in verse 5 of our text this morning. He wrote, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, which it does, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. 
Now, that I speak in a human way is Paul feeling compelled to qualify the question even before he answers it. An older translation has it, I speak after the manner of men, and since it is still very much the manner of men in this world to question the goodness and the righteousness and the kindness of God, particularly when it comes to the subject of his judgment of sin, it's good for us that this third chapter of the book of Romans begins with this series of rhetorical questions that address that very subject from, I think, just about every possible angle, demonstrating in each case that no matter how this question is framed, the answer is always the same. By no means, as we'll see in just a little while. And of course, we begin where we left off back in June. The apostle, at the end of chapter 2, having established that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, Paul then goes on to ask, that being the case, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Now, as we noted back a few months ago, we have to remember that Paul has no problem at all taking words like law or Jew and investing them with multiple meanings within a context that's fairly short. And here, within just three verses, Paul gives that word Jew at least two separate meanings. There are the Jews who are Jews by physical descent or by ritual. And Paul says, that doesn't matter anymore. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Rather, according to the Apostle Paul, a true Jew is one inwardly. And we'll be seeing more of this as we go on through the book of Romans. But a neat summary of what Paul is talking about is found in Galatians chapter 3 where he wrote to the church there, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So taking the definition of Jew from what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 3 and remembering the argumentation of Romans chapter 2, when he asked this question, then what advantage has the Jew the one who is just physically descended from Abraham, we would almost expect that the answer to that question is going to be no advantage whatsoever, none at all. But the apostle saw it differently. The apostle Paul sees it quite the opposite way, really. He said in verse 2, much in every way. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And again, just by way of reminder, as we saw previously, most commentators, if not all of them, are in agreement that this word oracles that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 3 denotes the whole of inspired scripture. He's not just saying the Jews were given the Ten Commandments, and that was a really good thing. He's saying the Jews were given the law and the prophets and the poetry of the Psalms and all of those things. And this is the advantage the advantage given to the people of the Old Covenant is, in fact, the fact that they were entrusted with that covenant, the very word of the living God. The advantage that the Jews had in those days when they made their way from Egypt on up to the Promised Land and under the monarchy and all of those times was that they didn't have to blunder around in ignorance and darkness. 
They did not have to read the stars or to read the omens or to interpret auguries to find their way to God. God found them. God called them. God chose them. God brought them near. And that's how God works. He doesn't leave people stumbling around in the world hoping that by some means or other they may one day find their way to him. God calls us. God chooses us. God knows us by name. And God has loved us in Christ Jesus our Lord with an everlasting love. There could be no greater privilege no greater advantage than to be included in the covenant community of God's people. And frankly, we need to reckon with this right here this morning. We need to reckon with what it means to be part of the visible church of Jesus Christ. We who have been baptized into Christ and who are gathering together this morning to worship and to come to the table of the Lord, who look to him for our salvation, who discern his body in the gathering of his people. We are the community of God's covenant people today. And we have that extreme privilege of having been entrusted with the very oracles of God. This is the amazing gift that God gave to Abraham and to all of his children by faith, including those of us who are here this morning, who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The thing is, many if not most, of those who were entrusted with the very oracles of God did not remain faithful to them. If you've been reading through the Bible this year, which I hope at least some of you have carried on once you got past Leviticus, but if you have, then you know from your scripture readings that at most times during the history of God's old covenant people, they were not walking in faithfulness to the word that they had been given. They were not being faithful to the covenant which God had made with them. And this leads to Paul's second question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the point, if not the question, seems almost reasonable. Given that that first generation of Israel even, who came up out of Egypt, who went to the foot of Mount Sinai, who were entrusted with the law of God, the Ten Commandments, were destroyed for this very thing. They were given the law and they couldn't even wait 40 days to have it in written form before they had broken it. And then God graciously gave it to them again and then he led them out on their way up to the promised land. And time after time after time, they abandoned their faithfulness to him until finally they refused to go into the promised land. And God said, None of the people who came up who were over 20 years of age are going to go in. God was actually keeping a promise when he overthrew them in the wilderness because he said, you are not going in. You can read about it in Numbers um, chapter uh, 4, somewhere, I think. Um, you can read about it in the book of Numbers. Now, according to Hebrews verse 4, this unfaithfulness was mixed with this idea the word preached did not profit them not being mixed in faith in them that heard it so someone might ask doesn't this nullify the advantage if having been given the word much of Israel appears not to have believed it and by extension we might reach out again and say what about those today who are born into the covenant community who have been baptized who were born into Christian families people of God 
who've been raised on the word of God and yet have turned and walked away from all of that. What about them? Doesn't their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the answer is the same today as it was almost 2,000 years ago. Certainly not. Again, depending on the translation, absolutely not. May it never be. The ESV has it by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Because a God always keeps his promises. As I said, he was keeping a promise when he overthrew Israel in the wilderness. And it's this very faithfulness of God, not only to bless, but also to judge, to which Paul turned in framing his answer. He wrote those words, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then, as it is written, as it is written in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Psalm 51, as it is written that you, now addressing God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judge. Now, there's so much that could be said about this, but I want to just quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. He usually says things better than I can. He said, the apostle here takes up this quotation, and you notice how very appropriate it is. He says, whatever a man may do, God always does that which is right. Indeed, he says, God is always right, and history will justify God. He goes on to say, it is a very bold picture. It is a picture, as it were, of God on trial, with mankind querying and questioning him, as we so often do these days. No, says David, when the ultimate facts are revealed, God will be justified and the world will have to admit, as I am having to admit now, that God is right and I alone was wrong. Centuries before Calvin wrote, the faithfulness of God is so far from being nullified by the perfidy and apostasy of men that it thereby becomes more evident. God is not unrighteous in inflicting wrath, even though our unrighteousness displays his righteousness more perfectly. And that being the case, he asked that question in verse 5. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And of course, the answer in verse 6 is exactly the same answer that he had given before. By no means. For how then could God judge the world? But as I noted earlier, even before going to the answer, Paul qualified the question. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, or I speak as a man. And his reason for saying that is because this is not a value, a, a, an actual question. It's a disingenuous question. It's like the so-called problem of evil. And you know how that's usually framed. It goes, if there is a God, if, huge if, if there is a God, and if that God is both all good and all powerful, then how can we account for all the evil in the world? As if the first or the latter nullifies the former. It's the fallacy of a false dilemma, the assumption in that question is that there are only two options available. And a certain kind of unbeliever will regard this as a mic drop question. There, I just solved the problem, there is no God because evil 
exists. And a certain kind of Christian will get so tangled up in that microphone cord trying to answer it that they'll trip all over themselves. But it's not a fair question. And frankly, I think most people who ask this question don't really want an answer. What they really want is to disprove the existence of God, at least in their own minds, so that we can all just be free of him. It's like that teacher, that teacher of the law who came to Jesus one time to put him to the test with another disingenuous question. He came to Jesus and he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was a trap. He was trying, he was testing Jesus. And Jesus turned the question back on him and he said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, according to Luke, the man answered, well, he knew his stuff. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as himself. So well done, sir. Good, good answer to the question. But verse 29 in Luke 10 becomes the key to the story and to the parable that follows. In verse 29, we read, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he asked Jesus a question, but he didn't really want an answer. He wanted to justify himself. He didn't want to be called to repentance and faith. He wanted to go on his way thinking well of himself, even in his sin. And frankly, we run into this kind of thing all the time and all over the place in our world today, and especially, especially on anti-social media. You go on Facebook or X or Instagram or wherever you want to go, and you point to the goodness of God with some little meme, and someone will inevitably then point to all the evil in the world, as if somehow the evil negates the former, the goodness of God then you direct their attention to the evil that's found in the heart of man and say, but that's the source of sin. That's the source of all of this evil in the world. And they will say, sure, okay. But then if there is a God, that God must be the one who made me this way. So to borrow a phrase from Romans chapter 9, why does he still find fault? If there is a God and he made me like this, well then he's just got to deal with it. As in chapter 3, if in fact our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, isn't it clear that God would be unjust or at the very least unfair to find fault and to judge us for it? Never mind the cosmic implications of that on, on a macro scale. In verses 7 and 8, Paul brings that down. He says, these are the questions that individual people have in their hearts. Verse 7, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Furthermore, verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I don't want to take too much time with this this morning because it will come up again in chapter 6. That's one of the things about a book like Romans. Paul is constantly sort of circling around the same subjects and just developing them from different angles and with different material. And in chapter 6, he will ask much the same question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But in chapter 6, he gives that same answer, by no means, and then goes on, 
because being at a later point in the epistle, he wants to develop it a little bit more, so he follows it with another rhetorical question. Having asked, shall we continue in sin, he then says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? See, this is what we noted last Lord's Day. If God's grace simply throws a cover over our sin and it leaves our authentic selves essentially unchanged, if all it is is God saying, well, live how you want and I'll forgive you for it in the end, then the question, why not do evil that good may come, is a valid question. After all, the bigger the sin, the bigger the cover, and in theory then, the more God would be glorified by covering it. That's not what grace is. That's not what grace does. And when we come to understand that we were buried, therefore, with Jesus, with him, by baptism into death, in order that, this is the reason, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Last week we noted we are saved from our sin and the consequences of our sin, but we are saved to this. We are saved to walk in newness of life by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And when we see that, when we acknowledge that, then this question, why not do evil that good may come? If God's grace is sufficient for all of our sin, then let's just sin boldly, let's sin big, let's just go out and do whatever we want. And it's all going to be okay. That's blasphemy. When we come to understand, as it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, that it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce the fruits of gratitude, then we understand Paul's answer in Romans 3. To the earlier versions of this question, he just replied with the simple phrase, may it never be, by no means... He responds a bit more harshly here after observing that this is a charge that had been laid slanderously against him. Paul simply stated of those who made the accusation, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation for accusing Paul of suggesting even for a moment that we should just go ahead and sin so that grace may abound was just. And we need to remember that. But we also need to realize that there were in Paul's day and there are in our day those who are actually teaching this. There are those who are actually saying today, let us do evil that good may come. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The more sin, the more grace. It'll all be fine. And we need to understand this too. The condemnation of that also is just. We need to understand it, especially as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments. We cannot come as those who are righteous in themselves. We cannot come to the table of the Lord claiming any merit of our own. It is all Christ's merit. It is all of grace. Paul will make this point later in this chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not our good works 
that bring us to salvation and it's not our good works after salvation that make us worthy of coming to this table. It is God's grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. But having said that, just as certainly, and Paul will develop this in Romans chapter 6, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Remember that? Those of you with a Christian Reformed background or a Reformed background in general, Lord's Day 1, he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. This is what grace does. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and now the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, the end of sanctification, eternal life. It's all part of why Christ died not only to redeem us in our sin, but to save us from our sin. Not only to let us know that we have been forgiven for all of those things by which we rebelled against God in the past, but to set us free from the tyranny of the devil so that we could walk with him in newness of life. Paul says, those people who say, let us do evil that good may come, that was a slanderous accusation. He never preached that, and we will never preach it either by the grace of God. He says their condemnation is just. But we need to realize it's a very easy error to slip into. That as we proclaim grace, we need to remember that grace changes us. One of those old-time preachers, I don't remember which one, said, if the grace that saved you didn't change you, then it didn't save you either. So let's come to the table as those who are truly sorry for our sin, who sincerely believe that our only hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and who earnestly desire by the grace of God in Christ Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, continue to pour out your spirit and your grace upon us here this morning as we've gathered to worship, as we've offered our prayers and our songs before you, as we've heard from your word. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us what is pleasing to you, that we may grow in grace that we may grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that, Father, as that knowledge grows and takes root within us, it would bear fruit to eternal lives, to eternal life in ourselves, but also the fruit of the Spirit that will point always to you, our God and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.